Well, I'd like to welcome all of you on this balmy New Year's Eve weekend. We're so glad you're in worship. Hope your Christmas was really great. And uh, since I won't get to see most of you face to face, we just wish you a very happy New Year. I hope it's a very prosperous one for you. Uh, most of all, I hope it's a year where you really go deeper with Christ and become a more Christ-centered person because that's really what it's all about. I first had the privilege of hearing Dr. E.V. Hill in the spring of 1987 down in Columbia, South Carolina. Dr. Hill was a renowned speaker and orator of the gospel. He was pastor of the Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in the Watts area of Los Angeles. Just a great leader and a tremendous preacher of the Bible. But he told a story that night that I have never, ever forgotten. He talked about in their church, uh, they had an elderly Christian woman uh, who almost always sat on the front row. And uh, she was so old, nobody really knew how old she was. In fact, she didn't know exactly the date she had been born. She didn't have a birth certificate with that uh, information. Uh, but they suspected that she was born sometime in the late 1800s. And so at times, they would just kind of call her 1800. That was just a fun little nickname they had. But she had a peculiar practice that kept preachers on their toes, especially visiting preachers. And I'll never forget how Dr. Hill told this story. He said, when a preacher, well, first of all, you need to know she understood from John chapter 12 that when Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all people to me, it was a double meaning. First, it meant I will be lifted up on the cross when I'm crucified and die an atoning death for the sins of humanity, but it also meant, and this dear woman understood this well, that we lift Christ up in our proclamation of him. Whether we're preachers or whether we're just sharing with a friend and talking about Christ, we lift Christ up and exalt him in our proclamation. So here's what she would do. When a preacher started preaching at Mount Zion Church, she's sitting right in the front row. If after two or three minutes she felt like he wasn't focusing on Christ enough and exalting him, she would gently say, get him up, get him up. And then she'd be quiet for a while. And after several more minutes of preaching, she felt the preacher just really wasn't putting the focus on Christ enough and exalting him and lifting him up and glorifying him in the preaching. She would get louder and more intense. You got to get him up now. You got to get him up now. Get him on up. And if by three quarters of that sermon, the preacher had not clearly taken the people to the cross and exalted Jesus and who he is and all he had done for us, she was practically out of her mind. She couldn't stand it and she was yelling by then, you got to get him up. You got to get him on up. And we chuckled about that, and we laughed about that as a staff that evening as we heard Dr. Hill telling the story. But wow, we have never forgotten it. And you know what? I like that woman's theology. 
Because that is really the job of all of us as Christians, to pave the way for Christ to come into people's lives by making him clear, by exalting him, by making them, helping them understand more clearly who he is. Now, as we continue in this series through Luke's gospel, we come today to a passage in Luke chapter 3. And this is a reminder, I think, of how God has called all of us to prepare the way for Christ. The focus is going to be on the one we call John the Baptist. Now, just a few weeks ago, we read and studied about his birth. You may remember that. The priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, even in their old age, had a child. His name was John, John the Baptist. That's the one we're reading about today because he has grown up. And he had a special call in his life to prepare the way for Christ. He was sort of the forerunner of Christ. The one who had come to proclaim that the Messiah was right behind him. And you know what? I think this message is particularly timely as we stand on the threshold of a brand new year, 2018, with all of its promise and with all of its possibilities. We're all to prepare the way for the coming of Christ in the lives of others. You know, the truth is, every one of us gathered for worship right now have family members, friends, co-workers, someone who does not know Christ yet. And the question that faces all of us is, how does God want to use us in helping move them at least a step or two closer to Christ. I want us to see five ways today that John prepared for the coming of Christ. And let's learn from this one who has a distinction. Here's John's distinction. Jesus called him the greatest that's ever lived up to that time. Wow, I'm going to learn from a person like that. So let's pick it up in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, you're going to be introduced to a lot of names here, uh, both of places and of people. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Now, tetrarch was simply a government leader in this Roman empire, in the Roman system of government. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, what happened? And Luke, the historian, is being very specific here. He's pinpointing the exact time and place when this occurred, like a good historian would. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, I want you to notice, first of all here, that John prepared the way through his distinctive lifestyle. Let's jump down. We'll go back, but let's jump down to verse 8. A part of John's message was produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Paraphrase, let your walk match your talk. John understood words are cheap. Anybody can talk about following God. Anybody can talk about doing the right thing or repentance. But let your actions, let your lifestyle back it up. And John's did. 
I want to give you a few D words here. They're not in your notes. You may want to write them down that portray his distinctiveness. First of all, his dwelling was different. He lived in a desert place, and yet he flourished in that inhospitable environment. Today, if you want to get a crowd, you rent a great hall, a civic center in, a, in the city. But John had such a magnetism about him, even though he lived on the outskirts of nowhere, people were willing to come for miles to hear him. Second, his dress was distinctive. If you read the parallel passages, for instance, in Matthew's gospel, you'll see that he was dressed in camel's hair. That was the roughest of clothing. It was very austere to dress that way. And he had a huge leather belt around his waist. That leads me to believe John didn't give a rip about fashion, okay? He wasn't fashion conscious at all. He was rather rough looking. He wouldn't blend in in a crowd. You might call him a true original. Third, he was distinctive in his diet. Oh my, my. He was organic before organic was cool. Let me tell you. Scripture says in Matthew that his diet was locust. That's almost like a grasshopper. Locust and wild honey. Now, I don't know which would be more unpleasant, gathering the wild honey or eating the locusts, but I wouldn't want to do either. His diet was distinctive. He lived differently, and he also had apparently made a Nazarite vow, just as had been prophesied about him. He didn't partake of alcohol, so he didn't drink wine or any other fermented drink. So all of this together makes him stand out. His lifestyle just screamed of distinctiveness, and it was curious to people. William Barclay made a statement I've always been fond of. He said, a man's message will always be heard in context with his character. And let me tell you, the combination of of John's message and his lifestyle was a serious one-two punch. It was powerful. And so he shows up, and people don't don't know what to make of him. He has no impressive credentials. He has no, uh, you know, pedigree or special training. He hasn't gone to any particular school or sat at the feet of a particular rabbi. He just shows up in the wilderness and starts preaching with authority. Let me ask a question. On the brink of this new year, I wonder how much our lifestyle affects our witness and our impact. You ever wondered about that? I wonder how does our lifestyle help draw people to Christ? How does it help prepare the way? We do know this. God has called us to be distinctive. I hope you'd agree. Scripture is pretty clear about that. Even passages like Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't let it press you into its mold, as Phillips paraphrases that. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're to live not some bombastic kind of life that's so eccentric it detracts from Christ because we're obnoxious, but we're to pave the way for Christ with a positive, distinctiveness. 
I think that's something we need to consider on the brink of a new year. We can be attractively different in a materialistic world where money is the God of almost everyone. We can be different by people seeing, you know what, even though we handle money wisely, it's really not all that important to us in the bottom line. That's not what we're going after in life. And people will be so struck by that, they'll wonder why. How can you keep it in such balance? Why are you not passionate about this? They'll want to know. The world dresses provocatively or even shockingly to draw attention. But we can be positively distinctive by dressing sharply and smartly and yet modestly. The world is filled with hatred and selfishness and gossip and slander. We can be attractively different by building others up whenever possible. And let our, our language be seasoned with salt and always looking to find a way to kind of nurture someone. Bottom line, I think our lifestyle more than ever in this culture makes a huge difference. There's a true story about Billy Graham riding on a commercial airline. And he'd been bumped up to first class with some frequent flyer miles. This popular preacher of another generation who's still alive but a uh, few younger people know who he is. And he's riding on this plane, and behind him, sitting here in first class now, as he'd been bumped up to first class, there was a man who was the most obnoxious man he'd ever seen in his life. The guy just kept getting drunker and drunker by the minute. He was loud and obnoxious. The stewardess walked by, and he pinched her, and then he started singing at the top of his lungs. I mean, nobody could control him. And finally, the stewardess... Stuart on this plane leaned down in an effort to try to get him under control. She said, sir, do you know who's sitting in front of you? He said, no. She said, it's the great preacher, Billy Graham. He said, you don't say. And the man stood up. He took a step or two forward in the aisle, looked down at the preacher. He said, are you Billy Graham? Billy said, I acknowledge that I was. And the man said, put her there, preacher. Your sermons have sure helped me. Now, Obviously, they hadn't helped him enough, all right? But our lifestyle needs to be distinctive. Here's the deal. As Christians, as I see it, we have two options. One is, as a Christian, we can pick a, the sort of Benedict option. It's being talked about a lot today. Where you cloister yourself away in community and you live a faithful Christian life in that little cloister of all Christians around you, and if you choose that, listen, you don't have to sweat being relatable to unbelievers because you have little or no contact with unbelievers as a rule. But the second option is to live among unbelievers. And that's the option that I've chosen as a Christ follower. And I assume that most of you have chosen. But the challenge when you choose that option of living, to be in the world and not of it, the challenge is how do you, how do you be relatable and approachable without, and yet without losing your distinctiveness? And I think that's the challenge we all face. Paul writes in Colossians 4, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. That means anyone who doesn't share your beliefs and values. 
make the most of every opportunity. And I think John did that by living a distinctive lifestyle. Secondly, John prepared the way through his baptism. Verse 3 reads, He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this was an innovative practice. Don't get me wrong. If you choose to study the religions of that time, the mystery religions and so on, many of them had a form of baptism. It might have even be something like the tarabolium, where the initiate would be put down into a pit. And a bull, I know this is gross, would literally be slaughtered over a, a grate above the initiate and the blood would fall down on them and they'd be baptized in that blood. Some of the mystery religions did that. There were all kinds of other water rites and rituals where they were dunked, sprinkled, had water poured on them in some way. There were many forms of baptism that represented all kinds of different things. But here's the deal. In Judaism, a proselyte, some Gentile coming into Judaism, becoming a faithful Jewish believer, they would undergo a water baptism demonstrating their change of belief and their repentance from the old way of life. But no one had done what John was doing. John was calling not just Gentiles to repentance, he was calling his fellow Jews to repentance and asking them to go through the initiation of baptism as a public demonstration of their repentance. Verse 4, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Now back in Sicily, hundreds of years ago, and vast sections of Italy... Most of the roads were unpaved. But guess what? Whenever the Pope declared that he would be paying a visit to a particular town, guess what happened? The main roads were paved to prepare the way for the coming of the Pope. Here, John the Baptist came to pave the roads for the coming of the Messiah. Not physically, but spiritually. And one of the ways he did that was by introducing this special ordinance of baptism. Now, I would say to you that one of the ways you can make an impact in the lives of others is to be faithful in following through. If you're a new believer in Christ, or even if you've been a believer for a while and have never followed Christ in believer's baptism, in water baptism, what a great way that is to... Pave the way for Christ in the lives of others. I've seen it over and over again. People who are getting baptized will invite friends and family and coworkers to come and witness that. And I've had people tell me afterward, wow, that's when I was first convicted of my need for God. So I thought, wow, I know their life. And you know what? I respect them. And if they need that kind of demonstration of their own repentance, what, how much more do I need Christ? in my life. A little boy was excited because his older brother was going to be baptized at church 
that Sunday evening. And he kept excitedly saying to his grandmother, Billy's going to be advertised tonight. Billy's going to be advertised tonight. Well, he got the word wrong. But he kind of had the right idea. As his brother Billy was baptized, it was like an advertisement. Hey, Jesus is Lord. And he's deserving of your allegiance too. And if you've not followed Christ in that way, it's one of the best practical ways I know. Not just to fulfill your own obedience, but to pave the way potentially for others to consider the claims of Christ. Third, John prepared the way through his preaching. And this was a huge part of the preparation. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, we knew he was blunt and rough, right? But this isn't exactly seeker-friendly. Would you agree with me? I mean, he's just kind of throwing it out there and letting the chips fall. Verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. Isn't that interesting? Even though people of every societal echelon were coming to John, the important, the impressive, the powerful, the rich, as well as the poor, he didn't sugarcoat the message for anyone. He just spoke the truth And he called them snakes, slithering away from the fire when the fire is built. He said, don't excuse yourself by appealing to your Jewish lineage and saying, Abraham is our father. That won't do you any good. That would be the equivalent, by the way, of us today saying, well, you know, my grandmother, she was a great Christian. I hope I get some points for that. No. God says we all stand before him By ourselves, for ourselves. It doesn't matter how godly the people are around us. Oh, they may have a good influence. But they can't represent us before God. So John's preaching wasn't all positive, was it? It wasn't all, let's just think positively. Or let's just build up our self-esteem. He was truthful, confrontational, and blunt. And he got very specific, verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And his bluntness was effective. One preacher told the true story about befriending a brilliant attorney that he was building a a friendship with and, and invited him to come to church to hear him preach. And finally, after a long, long time of asking the attorney finally showed up and the lawyer came late and he was ushered by an usher down to the third row in the in the sanctuary and he was seated right behind a a young man who was mentally disabled and so when it came invitation time at the end of the sermon he noticed that the mentally disabled guy and the the lawyer were talking with each other and suddenly the lawyer just kind of turned on his heels and stormed out of the church and Preacher was disappointed because he had prayed so much. He had worked so hard to get him there. And he was just expecting a very different outcome. But the next week, this attorney friend that he was building the friendship with came back. And when the invitation came, he responded 
to the invitation. And afterwards, the preacher talked with him and said, wow, what happened? He said, well, I hate to disappoint you, because the preacher had asked, why did you make this decision? He said, it wasn't anything you said. He said, last week when I came, he said, the guy that was sitting there beside me during that invitation time, he, he leaned over to me and he said, do you want to go to heaven when you die? And I was offended by that question. And so I said, no. And he said, well, go to hell then. <laughs> and he said, but I couldn't get it out of my mind. And I thought about it and thought about it all week long and I figured now was the time. Now, John's preaching was just about that abrupt. You brood of vipers, the axe is already there, ready to chop you down. And people couldn't get it off their minds. And then he gets very specific in his preaching to individuals. What should we do then? Verse 10, the crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the man who has food should do the same. It's interesting, when you really repent and get your life in line with God, the general rule is we just become a lot more generous because we're getting money in perspective. And through his straightforward preaching, John is preparing the way for Christ who would later say, give to the one who asks you. And hey, it's more blessed to give than to receive. John was preparing the way for that. John welcomed even the despised to his audience, just as Jesus would do later. Verse 12, tax collectors, they were among the most despised people in the whole community. They came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? John's advice, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And John was paving the way later for Jesus, who would call tax collectors like Matthew and a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus to be his followers. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And this paved the way later for Jesus who would teach, beware of greed. You got to understand that a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their Possessions. By the way, one little footnote here. Did you notice that all of John's ethical teaching listed here, his advice to both the crowds in general, to the tax collectors and soldiers in particular, all of his ethical advice revolved around how people value and use money? Did you notice that? Isn't that kind of interesting? I find it interesting that someone as great as John saw how easily possessions can take center stage in a person's life. And I think that's important for us to remember, all of us, as we enter this new year. We need to understand that when we get our attitude about money straight, it really does tend to straighten out just about every other aspect of our lives. I don't know of any more important lesson than that as we enter the new year. So let's, let's keep material things in, in perspective. So John's preaching, what we're saying is it was captivating, it was challenging, and it was inspiring. And by the way, one of the main ways that we can pave the way for Christ today is to introduce them to God's word. So invite people to church with you. Invite them to listen online. Give them some CDs, perhaps, if, 
if you, you don't believe they would listen any other way. You know what I've heard consistently through the years? I've had people say to me, Pastor X, I listened for two years to you online before I ever once came to a service. Or I listened to you for years. Or I listened to you for two months straight and then finally got the courage to darken the door of the church. You know, even in church circles today, there's some people who are kind of downplaying preaching. They say, oh, you know, the lecture method is just the worst way for people to learn. So we ought to scrap preaching in the church. We ought to get rid of it and not do that anymore. We, we ought to just have a lot more videos, a lot more cool, interesting things, a lot more interactive stuff, a lot more dramas. And can we acknowledge that there are wonderful ways and methods of learning that and we all learn in different ways. Some of us are visual learners. Some of us are more audio learners. Some of us need to get involved with our hands if we're going to really learn and so on and so forth. All of that is true. But I want you to hear me today. I hope you're listening. I believe there's something marvelous and even miraculous that happens when God's word is preached. And that's why we make such a high priority of that here at church. The Apostle Paul wrote, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. Some translations say, through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Now, not everyone's going to be moved by that. And let's face it, we can preach a false gospel with false motives. Not everyone's going to respond favorably. But when God's word is preached clearly, biblically, faithful, and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it's astounding what power it has. And hundreds of you could testify to that. So we're going to continue to hold the preaching of the word as a very high priority. Paul warned what would happen in the last days. He said to young Timothy, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Catch this part. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Friends, if ever that day was upon us, it's upon us. And we need to be careful and continue to be faithful to God's word. Fourth, John prepared the way through his humility. Verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. See, they're wanting to elevate him on a pedestal where he did not belong. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. A rabbinic saying from that day stated that a disciple should be willing to do anything for his master, his teacher, that a slave would do, except 
untie his sandals. That was too lowly an act for any Jewish person to do for another Jewish person. And John says here, look, the one coming after me is so great, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Look, he's saying my baptism has its place, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And by the way, those 120 disciples gathered in that upper room after Christ ascended, they saw the fulfillment of this prophetic word as those what seemed like tongues of fire were on their heads and they were all baptized with the Holy Spirit. His winnowing fork is in his hand <coughs> to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In those days, a farmer would take the wheat or whatever grain it was, toss it up into the air with like a pitchfork, and the wind would blow the chaff or the straw away that had little value. And the important stuff, the more valuable stuff, the grain, would fall down onto the threshing floor. And John is saying, look, the one who's coming after me, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. His baptism is greater than mine, and his judgment is going to be more severe than mine. Does this sound like the Jesus you've grown up knowing? <laughs> it's a pretty austere Jesus with a pretty serious mission, I think. In John 3, later on, some people came to John, and this is in John's Gospel, chapter 3. They came to John the Baptist and said, Hey, John, you know that guy that was with you on the other side of the Jordan when you were baptizing there? Oh, the guy named Jesus. Well, listen, dude, everybody's going to him. Even good disciples are going to him like Andrew and many others like that. And your numbers, man, they're dropping. Your stats are plummeting, John. What's going on here? And John was so humble, he said, he must increase. I must decrease. Chuck Swindoll said, a truly humble person has the vision to see God's hand in another's life and applaud it. And that was John the Baptist. He prepared the way, and then he had the good sense to get out of the way. That is humility. And folks, I believe humility goes a long way in paving the way for Christ in the lives of others. I've come to believe through the years that bombastic, caustic, Arrogant, critical Christians are just a turnoff. Can I be even more blunt with you? I think there's some Christians who, because of their attitude and lack of humility, actually do more harm than good. That's the truth. They do more harm for the cause of Christ than good. But I've come to believe that a Christian filled with the Spirit, full of the fruit of the Spirit, particularly things like love and gentleness and kindness, I believe God can use him or her powerfully. John had a humble spirit. Finally, John prepared the way through his courage. I think it's a hard balance to strike, folks, between humility and courage, but it's one we need to strike. Verse 19, But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, 
and all the other evil things he had done. And the next verse goes on to say that Herod added to all the other bad things he'd done and he had John locked up in prison. One of the brilliant things about John the Baptist is he was humble, but he was incredibly courageous. Now here's what was going on. Herod, this king, had made a trip to Rome to visit his half-brother Philip, who was newly married to a young woman named Herodias, and Herod became enamored with her. And essentially, when he left, he had stolen Philip's wife away, and Herodias returned with him to Jerusalem, and then he began to flaunt that relationship. Well, wouldn't you know it? John the Baptist has so much courage, he begins to preach about that publicly. He says it doesn't matter if he's the king or who he is, it's not morally right to do. And so Herodias got word of that, and she couldn't stand John the Baptist, and she eventually asked for his head on a platter. And she was responsible for his execution. But do you know who respected John immensely? In spite of what he allowed to happen, it was Herod. In Mark 6, 20, it says, Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. What an amazing statement that is. He said, look, I'm not there yet, but man, I respect you and I respect your life. I think the tension we face in our culture is how to be courageous without being obnoxious. How do we speak into political issues, educational issues, social issues, entertainment issues? How do we speak into the thought of the day and do it humbly with courage but without being obnoxious. Proverbs 28 says, A wicked man flees, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And I think most of us could use a good dose of courage in these days because there are so many things where we need to bring grace and truth to bear with humility, but definitely with courage. But you know, the bottom line, do you know who respected John the Baptist the most? It wasn't Herod. It wasn't the people who came to seek him out, walking for miles. It was Jesus himself. After Jesus heard what had happened to John, he made this statement as recorded in Matthew 11, verse 11. He said, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Wow. How he exalted Christ. He prepared the way, and then he got out of the way. May we follow his example in this new year as we prepare the way for the coming of Christ and the lives of so many people who are gonna find him as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, as we stand on the brink of a new year, we're reminded that we live in a very broken world where hurting people, oh, they hurt people. There's a lot of evil. We just want to pause and pray for the families and loved ones of those homicide victims in Troy. She would grant them comfort and peace.
Lord, we pray for the perpetrators that you would bring justice and would also work miraculously in their lives to bring them to repentance and to you. In this new year, Lord, would you empower us to be agents of your peace and ambassadors of your gospel and to represent you well everywhere we go. May we prepare the way for you and the lives of others. In Jesus' name, amen.